Now we come to God's word. We're looking at Exodus chapter 34. We're reading Exodus 34, verses 1 to 16. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and prepare yourself there to meet me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds gaze, graze um, opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break, down, break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to understand this word, and so we pray that we would be able to hear from you your inerrant word. That by the sword of the Spirit, you would give us a clear, convicting, precise, and sharp word that cuts us to our hearts so that we would hear from you and we would know that we are hearing from you and that we would respond in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so we've dipped our toes into the vast doctrine of the love of God. Last week, I gave you a lot of information on the love of God, but what I didn't do was give you a definition. You know, one author in writing about God's love, he tries to define, describe it and define it this way. He says, um, he uses these headings for his chapter. It's a chapter, right? 
And the headings are God is love, God is self-loving, God is initiating, God is merciful, God is compassionate, God is affectionate, God is kind, God is sacrificial, God is jealous, God is chastening, God is steadfast. These are all aspects of God's love. You see why a definition is so hard, right? J.I. Packer, he says, to know God's love is indeed heaven on earth. Love is like one of those basic realities of life, and yet trying to encapsulate it is like trying to describe heaven with words, right? Now, if I were, to, if I were forced to give a definition of love, like in 10 words or less, right, we might get some clarity. It would be very clear, but I probably wouldn't do it justice either, right? And, but here's the thing, without a clear definition of love, what you could get instead is a fog that fills the space where there ought to be a clear definition. Have you heard of the saying, nature loves a vacuum? If you don't know what that means, I didn't know what it meant either for a long time, but now I do, so let me explain. If there is an empty space, nature is going to fill it and grow, right? Weeds. Vines, vermin, insects, mold, anything will try to grow where there is an empty space. Nature loves a vacuum. Likewise, other meanings will fill the foggy space of where there ought to be an understanding of what God's love means if we don't understand it properly. And with that, there is a real danger. Okay? There's a danger there. What is that danger? It's called projection. And what do I mean by that? We all have this impulse to project onto God what we think love is based on our learning, our reasoning, our experience. We project rather than receive what God says to us. We put something there rather than having God give us what he has put in his word, the scriptures. Projecting what love is onto God is something very hard to avoid. For example, some people would like to think that God loves all people equally. Last week, we looked at John 3.16. For God so loved the world. It seems like that's what God's love is like, right? He loves the whole world. But then I pointed out that how John uses the word world. And that there's a distinction between the creatures of the world, the human creatures of the world, and the children of God in the kingdom. Creature of God is not child of God. Clear distinction, and that leads to different relationships and therefore different ways of loving. Now, for some of us, this isn't news, but for others, we may have assumed that God's love is the same for all, believer, non-believer. Maybe even that all humanity are God's children who can call on God as father. And why might people think that way? One reason is because we could have projected onto a God a view of love that is democratized. Democratized. Where all things are equal and fair. We're in the land of the free, home of the brave. Thanks to our democracy, a very treasured principle. And we might unconsciously assume that God treasures that principle just as much as we do and that's how he loves as well. Scripture would tell us something different. We learn that God's love differs between a creature and a child. 
And for, if this is news to you, that's going to take some time to process and to have settled in you, right? But uh, we're going to keep provoking. Uh, to show that this is the case, though, that there's a difference between creature and child, we're going to consider an attribute of God today, that God is jealous. A jealous love helps us to see how God views differently the creature and child of God, that God's love for one is not uh, the same for another, and that God is out to make a relationship and to make it exclusive. But it also happens to be that the word jealous is one of those words that we like to project a particular meaning onto, and that we have to be careful of. God is jealous. Is that good or bad? How are you going to explain that, that God is jealous? That's what we're going to try to work out this morning as we try to understand more deeply God's love. Okay? And we'll see that he reveals his name as jealous, and we learn that jealousy, God's jealousy, reflects his compassion, affection, and protection. Those are the three headings that we're going to be working with. What you see on the program, I've changed it, okay? So uh, God's jealousy reflects his compassion, his um, affection, and his protection. But first, let's, let's first make sure we see that. God's name. That's Exodus 34, verse 14. Maybe we overlooked it in my reading. Verse 14 says, For you shall worship no other gods, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. It's right there, right? I might come out as a shock, but God reveals his name as jealous. Why? Why? But before we even go there, we need to appreciate that God reveals his name. One's name is very significant, okay? It identifies who you are. God has multiple names, and it reveals something about who he is, his attributes, the thing is, though, God has many attributes as well, but not all of them get a name. Jealous does. Why does jealous rise to the level of importance that it gets a name? You've got to get the context for why God reveals his name as jealous. And we'll see that it first reveals his compassion for his people. Jealousy reflects God's compassion. So, context, background. God's people in, Egypt, in the book of Exodus, they, they were in slavery in Egypt. They, um, they wondered about this God who their ancestors believed in. A lot of help he is, right? We're in slavery. But then Moses appeared, and he, and he led the people out of Egypt and out of slavery under the direction and power of God. They didn't really know about him. God was in the midst of revealing his instructions to Moses so that he could establish this relationship with Moses and the people, the, uh, the Israelites. He was giving Moses his law, the secret of life. But the people decided to worship another God of their own creating. Now, that is a perfect case of projection. They didn't know much about God, so what are they going to make God out to be? A golden calf, right? And they worshipped it. This is while Moses was up on Mount Sinai um, receiving God's word, the law, the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images of me, right? This was beyond irony. I'm giving us the background, and, you know, we're just zipping right through the, um, the Exodus narrative. So we're not able to get a sense of how bad it really was that Israel worshipped a, a golden calf. I mean, how bad was it? Holy cow. 
right? <laughs> yeah. No, one pastor described it like you're committing adultery on your wedding night. See, God was uniting himself to his bride, Israel, and there she was going off. And at that point, God said to Moses and Israel, go your way. I'm going to give you the promised land that you wanted, but I'm not going to go with you. And so Moses intercedes and begs God for forgiveness, that he would not abandon his people. And we see God's compassion in dealing with Moses and the Israelites. Moses, he still didn't trust God, that God said, okay, I forgive you and I'll go with you. He didn't trust God, so he asked God, show me your glory. Give me some kind of assurance that you are going to actually be with us. Reveal something about yourself to me, something serious and deep and meaningful. Something like your glorious splendor, right? Now, we didn't read it, but right before in Exodus 34, in chapter, at the end of chapter 33, this is what happened. Now, let me read it for us. Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will, pro will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Right? God tells Moses, this is what you're going to do and I'm going to show you my glory. And so he also instructs Moses, make those tablets of stone again, the, the, the Ten Commandments. I'm gonna, God's going to write those Ten Commandments again. Go up to Mount Sinai, and then it happened. Moses encountered God. This is verse 5, Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What just happened? God passes by Moses. Moses sees God's glory, but what was that glory? It was hearing who God is. His name and everything about his name, what it means, which was very intimate and personal. In this chapter, we get a lot about God's names, don't we? First, it is the Lord, the Lord. That double repeated Lord emphasizes who he really is at his core. The Lord is the way of expressing God's personal name, Yahweh. That's the Hebrew verb to be. I am, you are, he is. God is, I am. See, the, that's, the, that's Yahweh, that's what it means. And with that name comes the meaning, right? The Lord, the Lord, I am, I am. Who is the I am? A God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God is. His personal name. 
It's Yahweh. And its meaning was revealed to Yahweh's people. They personally experienced Yahweh's mercy and grace, his patience, his steadfast love and faithfulness. This was the glory. This was the glory that Moses got to see, but really what he got to hear. And then the people, they get a secondary effect of that glory. Because Moses, later on in the chapter, he'd come down with this shining face. The glory was like reflecting off of Moses. Secondary glimpses of God's glory. But everyone would get the glory of who God is and what his name meant. That he was the God who was compassionate towards them and to them alone. These are the people of the covenant. Now, um, for some reason, our family, my family, was talking about tattoos. And Jordan, our oldest, he said he, wasn't, he wouldn't get a tattoo, but if he ever had to get a tattoo, he said he would get the, the Persian word, um, jang, <laughs> tattooed, right? Now, he said he liked the word because it meant war. So like the Jang clan would be the warrior clan, right? That's his idea, right? Now, if the Persian word a Jang meant bucket, he probably wouldn't get that tattooed on him, right? <laughs> Although I don't know what's a more faithful representation of our family. <laughs> anyway, um, Jordan would also not get the Persian word that sounded like the name Smith tattooed on his arm. Why would he? But what if Jordan got the word that sounded like Farquhar tattooed on his arm? <laughs> I'd be pretty upset, right? And with good reason. Like, after all the love and care that I have showed him, raising him. See, my people, they bear my name to signify their close relationship to me. And I would want Jordan to wear that name Jang proudly, as all of us would, right? for their, your families. Well, Yahweh was God over all the nations and peoples. He created them. He gave common grace to the whole world, allowing them to exist and flourish. But his heart of compassion was set on one people, his very own, those who would know who he was. And God would be very jealous for them. That's our first point. God reflects, God's jealousy reflects his compassion. But secondly, God's jealousy reflects God's affection, his affection. You know, jealous love, um, it always involves intense emotions and desires for another. And, and it's reflected in the plans that God has for his people, okay? Intense emotions and desires, and really, hopefully, for the goodness of the other. Verse 9, look at verse 9. Exodus 34, 9. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you, whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Right? You get those words? Moses begs for forgiveness, and God, in his continued compassion, forgives. He renews his covenant with, he, with his people, right? But this renewal sounds like a really big deal. 
The language is like really over the top, like the Lord, what the Lord is eager to do for his people. What does he say? Verse 10, I am making a new covenant. Behold, before all your people, I will do marvels such as has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do in your sight. The language here. This is not just like, you know, a, a transactional contract. Um, here. Here, people, you sign here, here, and here, right? <laughs> no, this is deeply moving. This is deeply personal. This reflects how much God treasures his people. It's going to be commensurate with what he will do. And God here, he's talking about the language of creation. He can do something that all of creation hasn't ever seen before. Something so marvelous that has not been seen in all of creation. It's going to be an awesome work of the Lord. So God is saying he's going to do something on the level of a new creation. That's the significance of this forgiveness and reconciliation that God and Israel experience. It reconciles one to God and opens up the creation to a new future. And so with God, we're not talking about superficial feelings, but deep affections. What the heart desires for a meaningful relationship. God will make it happen for the people that he sets his love on. With singular devotion and focus, it's not for everyone, not for all the creatures, but his very own. Jealous love, it always involves intense emotions and desires for another, and hopefully it opens us up to a future. With God, we're talking love on the scale of new creation. That's real affection, isn't it? But for us, humans, jealousy, it's a complex feeling, isn't it? This is where you gotta deal with the elephant in the room. We can't help but project onto God. We hear that God, his, he's, his name is Jealous, and that makes us feel a little unsettled, doesn't it? I mean, just think back to the drama of teenage romance. Boy likes a girl, they start dating. The girl has many friends who are boys. The boyfriend gets jealous of the girl. You know how it goes, right? Everyone's immature. They don't really know who they are. They are. They're learning about themselves, about relationships. They got to figure these things out. Back then, I had it all figured out, so I'm not talking about me, okay? But jealousy. Seriously, though. Some might associate jealousy with good reason, with uncontrolled passion, suffocating possessiveness, erratic, irrational anger. How do we make sense of God's jealous, affectionate love? Jealous love can be healthy. We need to know this much. It can be healthy. But it's when all those intense emotions and desires are channeled properly and towards a, a hopeful future, right? Not a dead end. Healthy, devoted jealousy. And that's one difference between God's jealous love and a projected, horrifying idea of jealousy, right? That brings us to our final point. God's jealous love is an affectionate love, but it's also a protection. God's jealous love reflects his protection. The phrase domestic violence, it's a terribly sad oxymoron, right? 
The two should not go together. Lovers should not be the most dangerous people to the other. According to the government agency, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, in 2021, 5,000, almost 5,000 women were murdered. How many of them were homicides of inti by intimate partners? What do you think the percentage there? 34%, pretty high, it's scary. Intimate partner homicide, it should make you shudder. And a fair share of it, I'm sure, included jealous rage. But lovers should be protectors, not murderers. And God's jealous love reflects his protection over his people. Look at verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their Esherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god lest you make a, con uh, a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of the daughters of, for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Now we start to see why God is so jealous. He reveals his name in the context of rivals that would snatch away his people's hearts and devotion. The Hebrew um, word for jealous is kana, and so God reveals himself as El, God, kana. God is jealous. You translate that word kana into the Greek, and it's the word zealous, which we get the English word zeal or zealous. God is jealous, and it, and it means he's zealous for his people's safety. Jealousy is zealous protection. Now, would God be overprotective, though? Like, dare I say, even stifling? Well, God is jealous for his people because he has a hatred for his rivals, the devil and all the false idols, gods and idols that they would get fallen people to make. See, if we're not thinking about the spiritual realm at this point and the forces that are at work against God, then we're not going to understand God's jealousy. And we're going to easily project onto God a bad jealousy. But a jealous protection of his own is what Israel should want and expect, shouldn't they? That's why God would command, tear down the altars and the idols and instead worship me, the God who is jealous for my people. God would be teaching his people, that there is a real war. It's not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, a spiritual war. All of this would be God's way of establishing the new creation, populating it with a people who would live for God and his glory as creator. But all this requires a shift in perspective for us. See, when we're at the center of the perspective, we can determine who are my enemies, who can harm me, whether I see someone's jealousy as suffocating or something that makes me feel special. But when God is at the center, he is God, he is glorious, he will have his people, and he's going to guard against the real enemy that he identifies, and his people would be safe. But also, 
As a result, his people would be in full agreement. And so trust and obey God's command that we're in God's world. Not just, we're not just taking any perspective, but the only true perspective that worshiping and loving anything other than God is garbage. From this view, I hope we can start to see that we should be so relieved, so grateful that God would jealously guard and protect his people. This is when we want him to be fierce, right? Kay wants to go watch The Sound of Freedom and support um, Angel Studios. That's the movie about child trafficking. I'm kind of slow to go with her, right? Because, you know, just imagine a father whose daughter is hanging out with the wrong kind of people. People who have, you've heard rumors about them. Maybe they're even suspected to be associated with child traffickers. No dad who loves their daughter will leave them alone, right? No dad's going to say, okay, you do you. <laughs> if you trust him, I trust him, <laughs> Right? No, a loving dad is going to be jealous of his daughter's heart. That she not find them intriguing, those people, those guys, intriguing or cool. That she would not love the idea of being with them, but rather that she would love her father and her family. That is a good and right and necessary kind of jealous reaction, isn't it? I mean, fierce protection. That's God. But his people would actually have a hard time learning this lesson throughout Israel's history. Only God and his glorious fame is worthy of worship. That's why God created humanity. It was sin that destroyed the human heart's desire for God so that humanity would want to worship other gods and not the one true God. How could they do that? Right? They're constantly tempted by idols, fine, but how could any other God rival the one true God who created them? If they believe that, something's got to be really off. And so we would need the ultimate protection, the kind that only God can give us, where the devil and his destructive powers would be dealt with so that God's glory would be restored and preserved. Not that it was ever lost, but so that people would finally be able to see and hear and bring glory to God as they were created to do. God would have to drive out his opposition for that, just like he's doing with Israel in the Old Testament, driving out all those ites, right? God's got to do it. The devil and all those who would be under his sway would be dealt with a righteous judgment. And how God would do it would be by him bearing the consequences himself on the cross. That's divine jealous love, where Jesus would sacrifice himself for the sake of his people in order to protect them. That they would not perish, as John 3.16 says. Jesus would defeat the devil, but it would be by dying. You know, it's like the father whose daughter, you know, made the wrong friends, got too close, got exploited, got trafficked. That father, if he loves his daughter, he's going to go to war, try to get his daughter back. And 
frankly, it's going to require him dying. It's not like the movies, right, where the dad and family get reunited in the end. No, when you're up against powerful forces like a trafficking ring, you're, you're pretty outmatched. See, but the cross would be the defining symbol of God's jealous love for his people. In fact, we should see this, that the cross is the answer to anyone who would be concerned that God's name is jealous. You're not projecting a bad jealousy, no. Divine jealousy calls for the harm to fall on the jealous one, not on the lover, on the loved one. There's no place for projecting a bad jealousy onto God. Again, from God's perspective, the right perspective, the only perspective, if we understand it, in light of the cross, we would welcome God to be jealous over us, wouldn't we? Let me close. Folks, if you know God's jealous love, then you absolutely must feel special. You are the object of God's compassion, his affection, and his protection. Have you come under his protection? Folks, if you know God's jealous love, then you will absolutely must feel safe. We're safe in the arms of Jesus and his gospel. Safe from guilt for our wandering hearts. Safe from shame for our foolish deeds. Safe from believing the lies of the devil that would condemn us. Because instead, what we believe is the victory of the cross. The sending of the Holy Spirit of glory to dwell within us. See, it's not going to be a glory that Israel experienced, a second-hand glory off of Moses' face. No. It would be a glory that would be made a part of us, deep within us. The Holy Spirit given to us, poured into our hearts. And it would mean forgiveness where we are now open to our new relationship with God in his new creation that's breaking into this fallen world. Do you know God's jealous love? It's by knowing his name personally, Elkanah. And now you know why. And hopefully you also know his name, Yahweh. And you know why and what that means as well, right? See, maybe you knew God. Maybe you knew God and you recalled him God, but maybe you never knew his name personally. Ultimately made known in the name Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You can feel special, but not just special, safe in the arms of Christ. Turn to him. There's a prayer for you. There's, we have these prayers in, um, in our program during communion. If you haven't turned to him yet, pray those prayers. And if you do know God's jealous love, then it's him that we pray to throughout the week, isn't it? Not just God, not even just Lordy. Oh, Lordy, right? But when we pray, we know his name, so that's how we process our thoughts, our fears, our requests. You are the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness.
You're jealous for me with an everlasting love. That's who we're praying to, right? That's who we can name. If you pray like that, a lot of your prayers are already answered. Do that this week, and let's pray together now. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God said, Let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have loved us with a jealous love to the point that you have adopted us to be your sons and daughters through the saving work of Jesus. We are your adopted children now, and so please guard us and protect us fiercely, passionately, powerfully, we pray. Protect us from the devil and all of his temptations. Give us the strength to be able to say, no, we love you more, O oh God. We experience a love that overpowers and satisfies. And even when we fail, that we know that God still is there to love us and restore us as we've come back to him in repentance. Help us to understand that empowering love to the point that we would even be able to show it to others. Thank you, O oh God, for your jealous love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.